0: telescopes and accessories hello everybody we are back with another space junk podcast i'm tony darnell from deepastronomy.space and with me is dustin gibson from opt telescopes and today we are going to be talking about astrophotography and in particular we our guests today are a couple i think they live in las vegas and they also uh image the night sky together and we're going to talk about what equipment they have some how they go about doing their astrophotography and talk about some of the challenges with astrophotography and all sorts of things so uh we are i'm looking forward to hearing what they have to offer us in terms of their knowledge and experience with astrophotography and they are their names are dahlia and antoine grellin and they live hey it's good to meet you (laughs) thanks for joining us and you you're in las vegas right did did i have that right yes Las Vegas. Ah, good. Okay. And uh, and so you got, by the way, maybe not in Las Vegas proper, but certainly in the surrounding area, you guys have some pretty decent uh, skies there, right?
1: Yeah, Las Vegas is really, really bright, but around Las Vegas, there's a desert and it's all, you know, pitch black, which is amazing for us.
0: Yeah, that's. I, I remember driving through Vegas quite a few nights, or Nevada, I should say, and seeing some absolutely stunning skies. Oh, so. yeah uh so you you guys work has been featured in all kinds of places you guys have been on in the all about space magazine as well as the amateur astrophotography magazine so your work has been kind of all over the place uh featured in lots of places but your website let me mention that real quick at the top of the podcast is galactic-hunter.com right yes where people where people can see your work now you don't just do astrophotography, but you also make uh, videos, short videos on on your adventures as well, which we'll
2: get into. But I have to get Dustin in on this. Dustin, you out there? I am. Yeah, this is um, this is one that I feel like is important. You know, we talk a lot about uh, the professional side of things, but amateur astronomy is still where my heart is in astrophotography specifically and um galactic hunter is part of the opt family here they're um part of the opt imaging team and work directly with us trying to make things easier for people and getting good information out there for people looking to get into the hobby or just expand their knowledge of the hobby and they do this in a uh in a fantastic way make the the complicated information very easy to understand and digestible. So Antoine and Dolly are doing that as well as anybody out there, and uh, they're they're doing imaging, you know, the way the hard way out there in the the cold deserts where snakes and everything else are. <laughs> so uh, I'm looking forward to to digging into this and really talking about exactly what it is you guys are doing, Antoine, and, um, and how how other people can do it and get uh, and take part in, in the same hobby. Yeah, go ahead and give us a, a, an intro into how you got started.
1: Yeah, so first of all, Dahlia is coming in about 20 minutes. She will join us later. Um, so we started in France, actually, about three or four years ago. Uh, we were there for family visiting, you know, and just out there in a very small uh, farm. And we saw the Pleiades um, in the sky. And I went home with Dahlia and we looked it up on Google. And there was like, you know, those pictures from anyone taking photos of the Pleiades and I was like wow I want to do the same and so we went back to the US where we live in Vegas and I tried to go with Dahlia to the desert around here about an hour from here and we saw the Pleiades again and we had like a very cheap point and shoot camera so we used that to to try taking a picture of it but of course it was a big fail right um (laughs) But we were just in awe because there were so many stars. I mean, we live in Vegas and we had no idea there was such great skies around there because Vegas is so bright. I mean, it's famous for being so bright, right? That's right. Yeah. But we're like, wait, there's no city around here. That's perfect for us. And that's how we started. And then we went home, went on Google again, Reddit, Instagram, and saw more pictures and more and more pictures. And we're like, let's do it. Let's try to get a camera, a good one, and try again. And that's how we started.
0: Now, you you uh, are not that far away from really good skies, though, in Las Vegas, right? So surely you um, must have, when, as you drive just outside, you can see some pretty amazing
1: I mean, it's still sights. an hour away. So, like, you know, at least 15 minutes from really, where we Really? You have to live. go that
0: far now to get to dark skies?
1: I mean, we go to, an um, like, a ghost town, which is, like, a border of 3.5 zone, which I think is one of the best, you know... Um, skies that's not too far from us, and it's about one hour away from here. So, like, 50 minutes, 55 minutes, an hour. Oh, okay. And when you got
0: started, uh, did you know anything about astronomy before, amateur astronomy, before you got started?
1: Um, astronomy in general, yes, because, I, you know, I always loved that. Um, Dahlia did not know really much about it, um, but astrophotography, no. Like, I didn't take any photos of anything before. Uh, same for Dahlia. We were, you know, just beginners, like, plain beginners. Uh, learning everything.
0: And how long ago was this when when you guys started? Um,
1: I would say three to four years ago. I think our first picture, you know, was our point and shoot camera was three years ago um, in 2015, uh, November, I think. And, okay um, now yeah.
0: uh, that that's amazing to me now i've been doing this podcast with dustin for a few months now and already i have met people who have been going for a few just a few years five years things like that and, may, and going from knowing nothing about astrophotography to becoming just making these beautiful amazing images dustin what, is that a sign of the times?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's the new world. That's the new world. Things, uh, you know, that's you're always calling it the golden age of astronomy, and you're right. I mean, that's the way things are now. Is that it's become simplified enough, and especially the equipment, you know, it's accessible enough now. It's inexpensive enough for people to jump in and be in with good equipment that's way above the frustration curve, and um, then you've got tools like these these websites where. Uh, Galactic Hunter, right? That's, that's the whole point of it is showing people the space imagery and giving tutorials on not just keeping all of that information locked down, which was really kind of part of um, the industry and even, you know, the hobby in particular, it was very competitive space for some reason. And now it's people um, like Dahlia and, and Antoine sharing this and saying, you can do this too. And if you want to do it, here's exactly the process for how to do it. And I think that changes the game entirely.
0: That's true. Because the goal many is. of our guests, yeah, many of our guests have been great at astrophotography, but don't necessarily take the effort and time that I'm seeing on Galactic Hunter, for example, uh, to uh to teach others how to do it. So was that something you you wanted to do from the beginning, Antoine? Just boy, this is so much fun. I just want to teach other people how to do it. Or did that happen in um, another way?
1: I always love doing like, you know, videos in general. Um, I used to film like some weddings in the past, you know, just doing some cinematic videos. Um, And I was like, maybe I should do the same, but for astronomy. So, you know, space related videos. And I'm like, you know, I'm in Nevada. It's beautiful here. So there's a desert. There's wildlife. Um, Telescopes are cool. (laughs) So let's do it. And that's why we do our episodes, um, which is our, our main videos on our youtube and um those ones really spend time you know we spend about three or four months on each of those episodes to really make them beautiful cinematic and helpful at the same time
2: that's what separates your videos i think from a lot of them online that's definitely what caught my attention uh when we started looking at uh all of your work here was just how incredible the production quality is it it makes you want to watch just seeing you know the production itself it's not just another hey i'm filming this with my iphone and th- throwing it online here you know film post but you really take the time to put uh, put work together that's engaging and really makes you want to you know be part of it and um you know i think that's what that's what we need it really shouldn't be this competitive, exclusive space. But instead, this is the shared universe. The whole point should be to share it and to make this something that people can enjoy and get perspective from the same way we all have.
1: I agree, yes. Um, and at the beginning, we're just planning to do the, the episodes only, you know, just the main videos only, but they take us so much time to film that now in between we do tutorials and we do other short videos in, in the meantime.
2: Yeah, sure, and we're and, you know we're always trying to throw uh, throw equipment at you because it's it's fun to watch your your process <laughs> unfold. So uh, I know I know you stay very busy with it, but let's let's dive in here on um, kind of what the process looks like for beginners because I feel like that's really who can benefit from what you're what you're doing. Is somebody that's getting into the hobby, especially now that um, a lot of the learning curve has been eliminated because the equipment is just so good. It does a lot of the things for you that used to not be possible. Even something as simple as polar alignment that used to be a real hurdle for people. Now you've got equipment like the PoleMaster and and other things that are available to do that for you. You know, Meade even builds it into their StarLock on some of their mounts. So. You've got some of these hurdles eliminated, but let's talk about your pro- You know your process, and what this was like for you going from true beginner not long ago to being one of the experts in the field, and actually somebody that's educating the beginners now on how to go to your level.
1: <laughs> All right. So, um, our main uh, camera was a DSLR. We just changed to a CMOS camera, but we spent most of our last three years on the DSLR camera. Mm-hmm. And we got so great results with those um those cheap cameras because what matters is the sky, you know. The quality of the sky is number one. So we spend the time of going out there every single time. We you know, we could go in the parking lot next door and just image from there right. with a filter, but we haven't tried that yet. We just spend the time to go to make the drive, you know, and go to the desert because we really want to find a good sky. And I um, actually took the time to calculate here. We spent, um, we went there 70 times in the last three years, which equals to about 250 hours of uh, driving and setting up. Wow. And not counting imaging.
2: That's dedication.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to get, you know, some great results, you have to dedicate yourself to spend
2: the time and, and look for the best guys. Mm-hmm. And then, um, go ahead. Well, you said you started with a DSLR. Is that where you would recommend people start? Or would you recommend that people start with an astronomy dedicated camera?
1: I mean, for a beginner, I would definitely say a DSLR is the way Um, for a true beginner. um, I mean, I'm very happy with my CMOS now, Um, but, um, you know, it's really there's more cables with a a cool camera, and a DSLR is just so easy, you know.
2: Yeah, I agree. And plus, you have the instant gratification of seeing the image pop up right there on the back of the camera. All right, that
1: matters a lot too.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're when you're doing this for the first time, especially, and even now, even now, I still love watching it pop up because it, it's like fishing, right? You throw out that long exposure, and you're sitting there watching the countdown, and then um, you see what your catch is. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing to watch those images. There's a galaxy right there on the back of your camera that's 28 million light years away that never gets old, and then you're seeing it in color as well whereas (laughs) that satisfaction obviously goes away when you switch to monochrome or you know some of the other ccds where you know my system now is fully automated so it's running while i'm sleeping at night and it's just not the same it's there's so much satisfaction and just enjoyment in pushing the button being part of the process and then watching it expose right there on the back of the camera
1: yeah it's pretty amazing you know when you're just beginning and just Doing Andromeda for the first time, you're like, oh my God, what is this? Like,
2: yeah, this is me, you know. So, what made you make the switch then to a CMOS uh, astronomy dedicated camera?
1: Uh, well, you know, it's been three years now with the DSLR. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's time for us to to move to a, a better camera. Right. The DSLR is cool and all, but we were, we wanted to do a, a Hubble palette for a very long time, and now we can.
2: <laughs> so, you uh, switch to a monochrome camera then?
1: Yes, we have a monochrome camera.
2: Right, that's the big thing. So, what about just color to color? Would you recommend that people switch if they, say, have like a DSLR um, that's non-cooled versus a color that's cooled?
1: We haven't tried a cooled uh, color camera yet, but I think some of them are really good. So, it's actually much easier than uh, than a monochrome. I think so. Maybe yes, actually, for a beginner.
2: Yeah, I would. I would agree. What are your thoughts on that, Tony? Well, um, versus colored versus monochrome. Yeah, we get asked that quite a bit here. I mean, obviously, like you know, it's it's my job to have to have answers to those questions here. But uh, I'm just interested in your thoughts because you come from a completely different background with it.
0: Well, before I met you, I would have said, you know, this color business, you know, forget about it. But the the uh, the more I've learned about the CMOS technology and how it's gone from, uh, you know, how it's progressed over the the I guess just the recent years. Um, it's something I'm dying to try. I mean, I'm, I've, I've always done monochrome with a CCD camera and filters, and you build up your RGB image, you know, based on whatever filters you were using and putting it together later. But um, this is, I think, one of the things that technology has simplified for everybody. Color imaging is now uh, something that, that's pretty easy to do. And But help me understand something, Antoine. The, the DSLRs, these are color imagers too, right? Yes. So I'm looking now at your website and it's the, I'm looking for in particular at the Uh, barnard loop image that you've made which is just astonishingly amazing it's one of my favorite things to look at because it's so wide field and you see so much in it and it's
1: insane yeah
0: it's you know this is a region in orion that is is um the result of a supernova explosion and the uh h alpha uh, features are show up barnard's loop is this loop of cloud in h alpha that you can see and you list there that you had taken this with your canon uh 7d that's the dslr right Yes, it is. And then I love the acquisition details. The total exposure time was seven hours. RGB, which means I guess in each channel is three point six hours. Is that right?
1: Yes, it's just a you know in one shot because it's it's a DSLR camera, so it's just RGB in one shot already. Mm-hmm. So each shot is RGB.
0: And the hydrogen alpha exposure time was another three point six hours. Did you add an H alpha filter to the lens?
1: Yes, so I actually bought a um HA filter from OPT about a year ago and we tried it on this target for the very first time and yeah, it was perfect.
0: So did this work with you taking the image of the region first without the filter and then you added the filter and took another equal length image?
1: Yes, because every night we spend about maximum four hours on a target because we don't have much time to stay there much longer. Um, So we did RGB, so you know, regular shots with our DSLR camera for one night, which is about four hours, so 3.6 hours. And then we came back later on a different night for just a HA for another three point six.
0: And for every exposure that you took, each one was six minutes long. Is that right? Yes. So the, the 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 thing I'm getting at is the most complicated part. It seems to me now with color imaging. You asked me what I thought of it, uh, which is so easy to do now by just using a DSLR or other CMOS color cameras. Uh, that now the 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 tough thing seems to be. You take all these six-minute exposures, and it w- and uh, you take your calibrated, your cali- your darks and your biases, and and your uh, your your uh, flat six. fields, and then uh, you 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 calibrate all this stuff out. That seems to me to be the most difficult part uh, of imaging these days. Or it is that is, yeah, is that automatic is... now <laughs> too? <laughs> uh,
1: maybe one day, but right now it's really really hard to process images, uh, depending on what you use. Um, we actually made a video about this whole Bonnard's loop, uh, episode 8, and we show in there the difference between um, with and without the filter, and then we show how we processed everything so people can you know, see f- um, how it becomes you know, so, so beautiful with a filter and how to process this as well.
0: And that's, it's just an amazing image, folks. If you're listening, go to the GalacticHunter.com and check it out. You can see the Orion or the Horsehead Nebula in right off of uh, Zeta Orionis. It's just there. And I don't know, there's just so much in this image uh, that it's always always been one of my favorite things. So it was one of the first things I, I clicked on. And can I talk a little bit about your mount? Uh, because to me, that is becoming uh, uh, one of, you know, the cameras are great, optics are awesome, filter, filters are, are growing all the time, but what kind of mount do you use, and what would you recommend for beginners?
1: We use a Norion Atlas EQG uh, motorized mount, so it's good, um, it doesn't have any fancy st- uh, stuff like, you know, polar alignment uh, built in it or anything, but um. It is really good. I mean, it does its job. Um, it never failed us, so really happy with it.
0: Is it a go-to mount? Yes. Okay. And the and and then uh, what what about software? What software do you guys use?
1: Uh, for processing or
2: Yeah, for processing. Uh PixInsight. Oh, okay. And That's is- a pretty standard answer. For most, um, is it? You know, although, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Astro P- Pixel um, processor is is coming up as well. Though a lot of people are switching to that for the Mosaic Builder. Really, but huh. yeah, that's that's phenomenal software. The Mosaic Builder in that software is just absurdly good. So incredible! you know, we never I mean, tried.
1: We never tried doing mosaics, so
2: <laughs> Yeah, with a field this wide, I mean you've got the almost the entire constellation of Orion in this one shot. So with a field that actually it is the entire constellation of Orion. Yep. Um, you know, you um that's a pretty wide field. You don't really need mosaics unless you're trying to do an all sky shot. So um, I mean, this is, uh, this is an incredible photo. I agree with you, <clears throat> Tony, but looking at it, you know, the reason I ask you about cameras is because you have a lot of detail here, a lot. I mean, there have got to be, there's got to be a hundred million stars in this image. It's just insane. You, when you zoom into it, you can tell there's not a pixel in the image that doesn't have a star in it. You know, it, it is incredible. Um, but you know, for me, I've I've been using monochrome cameras. Basically, so my first camera was a color camera. It was a color uh, CCD uh, QHY10. I absolutely loved that camera. I had it on a Hyperstar, so really fast system. I was doing twenty second exposures, and then seeing the images in color right there on my computer screen, and was having a blast. But over time, the realization that if I switched to monochrome, that I was going to get uh, better data, kind of set in and it was the Bayer Matrix and the idea of having one that really made me switch and then I've gotten nervous about switching back. But the images I'm seeing now with with the newest color cameras are so good that it's definitely piqued my interest into going back. But I'm interested to hear how how your experience has been because you started with a color DSLR. So you had no cooling and then you had the Bayer Matrix issues. And we can, we can talk about that a little bit if you want. But um, now you're using monochrome. Have you seen a big advantage in your image quality? So for now,
1: not yet, because we only did like three images so far. But I know we will in summer because Vegas is incredibly hot in summer. And when you use a DSLR, you know, in the heat out there, even at night, you see all those red and, you know, those hot pixels in there. Right. It's, it just destroys your image. Whereas with a cooled camera, I'm sure it's going to be, you know, perfect, you know, insane. it's going to be, because this star is just, you know, in our last episode about the Phantom Galaxy, we showed um, the difference between imaging in the heat and in regular temperatures, and the, the difference is just insane.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. The cooling makes all the difference in the world. And that's why, you know, the professional cameras have these three and four stage cooling, um, you know, liquid nitrogen. They have all kinds of cooling systems on them to just freeze the sensor. It makes all the difference in the world when you're talking about thermal noise buildup in the image. But what always scared me was the Bayer Matrix. And let me just give a. a quick rundown of what that means for people that um, are kind of interested going color or monochrome and the reason that I'm sure you probably switched same reason I did which is what's the easiest way to say this maybe let's consider if it were raining right this is going to be a creepy story because it's raining red it's raining red only red And every one of those drops you're trying to catch, and you have 100 buckets, and that's your sensor, right? You have a couple limiting factors. The first is going to be what's called quantum efficiency. It's basically, let's say your quantum efficiency is 70%. That means you're going to catch 70% of what hits the buckets. The rest is going to bounce out. So now take your 100 and get rid of 30 of those buckets. And of those 70 buckets that you have left, you have this Bayer matrix over on a color camera. A monochrome works by simply putting whichever filter you want. If you want to capture red, you just put a red filter over the whole thing and all 70 of your buckets that are left are going to catch that red light. Every time it hits, it's going to catch it. But what happens with a Bayer matrix on a color camera is you have an RGB pattern over the sensor that repeats. So, For every four buckets you have, you have to put a red filter over one, a green over the next, another green over the next, and then a blue over the next, and then repeat that pattern. So of the 70 buckets you have, only a quarter of those can catch red light at all. And the green and the blue that are covered in those filters are gonna reject that red light. So your camera accepts of the 70% you have, because you've already lost 30, For the quantum efficiency. Now you've lost another 75% for catching red light, which is all the hydrogen stuff that you're talking about that's in this image here. You only have, you know, a, a very small percentage of the sensor that you're actually collecting that hydrogen on. And the same thing is true when you talk about blue, right? And then obviously it's a little bit better with green, but there's not a whole lot of green that you're trying to pull from space. Definitely not as much as you are red. And so it can really really be limiting with the camera having to guess so much on where is this red light because we're getting a fraction of you know 25% of what's left of this falling into the buckets at all and you know <laughs> That's, that's really asking a lot of the sensor when you could be getting 70%. And that's why people switch to mono. That's why I switched to monochrome. And it's actually not, you know, it's not time prohibitive. It's actually a time savings because you're catching the light so much faster. Um, But you know, that's, that's the way it should work. But what I've seen in practice is that it's not necessarily working that way. I mean, some of these images, you can't tell looking at them, whether it was shot with monochrome or color anymore. The cameras have gotten so good that this is still technically what's happening it's still technically the limiting factor but the images are absolutely incredible with these new color cameras so (laughs) i mean i don't know maybe that's um maybe that's too deep for the conversation but does that does that make sense on why i think people switch is that why you switch
1: um i would say so yes i mean it's just. Going to make such a big difference in the long term for each image we're going to make. Um, we lose so much data with the DSLR camera mm-hmm. uh, when you think about it. And I think, yeah, we you know using a filter at a time is so much pain sometimes. Right. But it's so worth it.
2: Yeah. And then that's the thing is it gives you complete control Is is what's kept me with monochrome is that if I just want to capture hydrogen, I can go do that in the middle of a city and just put a three nanometer hydrogen alpha filter on it and my signal is extremely strong whereas with a color camera if i'm already limited by the quantum efficiency i'm already limited by the Bayer matrix the last thing in the world i want to do is put another limiting filter on that you know but i mean that is that's the theory but in practice we're not seeing that you know we have this this triad filter which has four nanometer band passes in multiple channels. And it's some of the best images I've ever seen posted, ever. I mean, people are taking APOD quality images with color cameras using I've seen filters.
1: It's insane.
2: Yeah. And so it's just... Um, and they're doing know, it from, think, from light polluted areas, right? Yeah. from yeah. City, I mean, you know, Tony, we're going to be shooting in Times Square, New York. That's right. With a color camera, with a filter, limiting it even further. So I just... I think the cameras have gotten sensitive enough and um, good enough at interpolation to really be able to push this beyond what would have been the bounds even five years ago. Okay, but I'm getting a little bit confused. Is it better than, are you saying, to use a filter in a monochrome camera or a color camera? So technically, monochrome is going to be better at okay. everything, every time. Yeah, that makes because sense. Because it's only going to collect, yeah, every single pixel is collecting whatever you tell it to Yes, with the filter. And you
0: got to fight these lenses that are on color cameras. Uh, exactly. No matter what you do, right? So you're adding exactly. filters on top of filters, and it's better to just avoid that if you can. So okay,
2: good. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking. But I thought that's I heard a good you way say to put it. You were. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's filters on top of filters on top of filters. Right. And um, you know, so filters don't bring things in; they reject things. And so it's just it just becomes this, you know, this rejection of pretty much (laughs) I don't handle rejection well I don't yeah yeah astrophotographers don't handle rejection well that's why that's why most are you shooting monochrome (laughs) right well one of the things I
0: want to talk I want to ask you about Antoine I was as I was coming familiar with your work and your videos is, uh, you have a great video on how to focus. Now, when I was starting as an amateur astrophotographer and I was using film, no comments from you, Dustin, I know what you're going to say. Uh, but when I was using film back in the day, focusing was probably the biggest frustration I had in, uh, ever in getting a ad- because I, even with the moon, you know, it's hard to get things in focus when you're just looking through a viewfinder, Tell us, can you give us your process for focusing and how you, because you get nice, pristine star images in your, in your, uh, images.
3: Um, first of all, I wanted to say oh. hello. Oh, hi Dahlia. Are I, you here? I'm here now.
2: <laughs> welcome. Yeah. I was like, okay. wow, your voice changed fast. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's fun. You're,
3: uh, <laughs> Wow. Antoine, you sound so pretty. <laughs> yeah.
2: now. Oh, please. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Welcome Dahlia. <laughs> yes. Welcome.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry I showed up a little bit late, a little bit of emergency, but, um, I mean, um, Antoine has been using cameras a lot longer than I have. Just you know, to put my input because, like, in my opinion, I think he's definitely the professional in all of this. Um, I've had a really, really hard time focusing myself just even with the camera manually, and he's always like, "Oh, just put it on automatic; it's fine." But, um. But with, like, the telescope anyway, like, what I've learned and after we, you know, purchased our telescope, the Batinov mask, I didn't – I had no idea what that was. I'm like, why do we need this? Mm-hmm. And he explained to me that whole process of um, focusing, and I'll let him get on to that. But <clears throat> um, using the Batinov mask has made a difference, and he even the first time showed me, like, that it's really important to focus, especially when we're taking long exposure shots. And honestly, like – I, you know yeah I'll let I'll let him explain the rest of that cuz
2: yeah focus I'm, I'm is critical just... right It has <laughs> to be right or the image won't be and so you found the Battenhoff mask to be um the tool of choice for you for getting focus right
0: yeah describe what right. it is yeah, too I mean, yeah.
2: uh, so our listeners can know what that mean what that is
1: Well in short it's a very very cheap uh i think it's pvc um piece of you know
3: plastic plastic
1: yeah uh which you put on the end of your telescope and so the light goes through, and what you see on your viewfinder is a bright star that is that has some spikes in it,
3: like points, really. Diffraction, diffraction spikes, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, diffraction spikes um, on this bright star, and all you have to do is just turn the focusing knob until the the spikes just reach the center uh, of the star,
2: which makes so them symmetrical, the center, right? They become symmetrical yes. at a certain point
1: they become symmetrical and they're perfectly dead in the center. And that's how you know you're perfectly focused. So
0: it's this thing made of plastic that has all these lines in it that the light from the star passes through. You want to start on a bright star, something with lots of a point source. That's the one good thing working for you in astronomy is you have point sources of light everywhere. And you can, as the light from this point source goes through all of those different lines, the the, line, the light diffracts. It bends around. It makes these spikes. And you're saying that if you get those spikes lined up centered in the star and symmetrical, you're in focus. Correct. Okay. And how do you view, do you do this with your camera in the eyepiece holder or do you do, you have to, don't you? You can't do this visually with your eye because your eye doesn't.
3: Right.
1: I mean, I, we never tried that. But I think you could actually could with you? your eye. But probably, I mean, what we use is our DSLR camera. I mean, back then, uh, it's really easy because you have the uh, the viewfinder on it. Uh, now we use the uh, ASI 1600, which doesn't have a viewfinder. So we have to use our iPad, uh, with which is connected to the ASI Air. And it gives us a preview of the star. Um,
3: and I think with a DSLR camera, um, I mean, it's it would be better for the viewfinder anyway, because then you have the opportunity to zoom in a little bit and know if you're really getting... You know that symmetry with the spikes.
0: That's true, because in your video you said you want to max out the digital zoom so that you're all the way in. I mean, you want to get as close as you want to super exaggerate, you know, your view so that you can easily and clearly see these diffraction spikes, right? And then when you back off, you can get a better image.
3: Yeah, then then you know you're good to go. But yeah, zooming in is definitely very helpful when you're using the camera. So I mean, I'm I'm personally against using the viewfinder because I mean you can really trust your eyes, but can you?
2: Well, I was just going to say these diffractions and using that, because the other way to do it is just to, um, in the way I've seen most people do it is just to trust that you're going to know when the stars get smaller. Cause as you focus tighter and tighter, the stars in the image or on the viewfinder <clears throat> get smaller and smaller, but then as you pass focus, they start to bloat again. And so you really mm-hmm. have to, you start to question yourself, like, is it as small as they can be? Or <laughs> am, did I, did I miss it? So with this, there's really no guessing because it's, it's exactly what they're describing where it is only symmetrical at one place and, and so you can tell it just really makes it a lot easier to tell. and and dustin and and, and antoine and, and and dahlia do you guys
0: use digital focusers or do you just do you do this in some other way
2: We do it the hard way, so no, we don't. Rack and pinion, huh? (laughs) Yep. What about you, Dustin? Do you use electronic focuser? Oh, man, you make me sound bad. I've gotten so lazy, Tony. So lazy. (laughs) I I have this button I press that says focus, and... um, (laughs)
3: I know. Wow, what happened to yeah, the labor of love? Yeah. Uh,
2: this is why you gotta love. You gotta love Jeff and team at Optech. They've made these things just so easy. Um, so yeah, I put a I put a digital focuser on on all of my systems, and I press it. I just trust it to get focus. Mathematically, it's going to be a better focus than what I can do visually. So I just trust the math to get perfect focus, and it does. And then it it even temperature compensates. So as the temperature changes through the night it's all mapped out so that, you know, if it's a 10 degree swing, it automatically rotates focus for me to compensate for that by filter. I mean, it's, They've made it so easy that, um, yeah, <laughs> when, I've been spoiled. When been you were spoiled.
0: telling that story, the first, the image that popped into my mind was do you, that that scene in Star Trek IV, the movie, uh, that where Scotty is into the 20th century and he has to use an Apple Macintosh. And he's like, oh, how quaint. And he goes to – he, he picks up the mouse and he speaks in it and he goes, computer. You know, and it's like when you were saying I tell the story, I just tell my computer focus and it. You know, or I tell my tell focus. That's all it does. That's what popped into my no, head. How great that you man. have to actually turn yeah. a knob. I see. I
2: still I still really do enjoy it. I keep a system at home for that reason, because I like the hands on. You know, it's just something different about. So I've got my imaging where I'm laying in bed. I hit basically I click on the pictures of the targets I went to shoot and then I go to sleep. I wake up and then there's all my data from the observatories. But then there's something to be said. I mean, the whole reason I got into it was being out under the night sky. And so I still keep a system at home for that reason to do everything we're talking about. I still go out with it all the time because it's just different. The whole point is being out under the night sky and enjoying all of this and you know, seeing it is just as much fun as taking pictures of it.
0: Well, Dustin, you're making it sound like there's no skill involved here. You just say Go, that go, is way too easy go focus and then i start the thing and then i go to bed and i wake up the next day and i've got this yeah. computer full of images and then I, I, yeah. yeah yeah
3: man like we're always out there <laughs> from like you know sunset until like two in the morning yeah and we're like oh well I just pushed the button and then I went to
2: sleep. And out comes <laughs> That's the Helix remote. Nebula. <laughs> hey, hey, you guys can't make too much fun of it. You have access to the same remote observatories being the affiliates, right? That's true. Right? Very, so, very true. So you get, you get to you get to cheat just oh. as much as I do. And did. I
0: will say I did appreciate yeah. that aspect, logging in and going focus. And oh, okay. Yeah. Now
2: now let's go look at the barge yeah, yeah, loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that, that side of imaging is all about processing. That's where you get to be part of it is, you know, the – the system's going to do it all for you. These are remote observatories. They're going to do everything. They're going to move all night long while you're sleeping and get it perfectly aligned within a third of a pixel. And it's going to be perfect guiding and everything. Then you've got this data and now you build something with that data. But I agree. That's not, that doesn't make you feel like part of the process of imaging. And that's why I still do it the other way. I still go out to the deserts and I bring the systems and I just like to be under the dark sky. And, and, just and enjoy dust it. that's why I like visual astronomy. That's why I always right. look at an eyepiece. That's
0: we've been talking. You guys probably don't know, but we've been talking about this since episode one. So, yeah. <laughs> visual <laughs> versus versus uh, imaging. Well, you say no, talking. I
3: can do it better. No, I can do it better.
2: Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says talking, but really, what he means is arguing. And um <laughs> so you'll find oh,
3: you guys are gonna get an earful with Antoine then
2: Yeah, you'll you'll find that Tony is wrong a lot. You
0: will. You will find <laughs> that. You will find <laughs> that. Except for when I'm right. And then and then there's yeah. that.
2: <laughs> but but tell us about so you're out you're out until what, two, three o'clock in the morning in these deserts. Um, what are the challenges other than of course just freezing and being around rattlesnakes and everything right. else <laughs> have you seen well, rattlesnakes have you
0: actually come across <laughs> rattlesnakes
1: so we've seen um snake holes on the ground like a bunch of yeah. them and we've seen snake hunters um we've seen everything but snakes for now
0: so wait a minute you're out there in the desert explaining. you've got your telescope set up a snake hunter walks by you're like what's up and he's like yeah what's
1: up <laughs> that that's <Yeah. laughs> what well, we've we've seen like the i mean the most scary part for me was during episode two the filming Uh, we saw a camel spider. I'm not sure if it's a camel spider or, you know, some kind of other animal. It is
3: a eight-legged whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a camel spider. It was very scary because, I mean, I hate spiders. Like, Um, I was... uh,
3: They can bite, but they don't... Yeah, I think they have, like, the capacity to hurt you and, like, but not kill you, you know. So don't know.
1: They don't, no, they well, don't have few, any venom on anything. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so. Scary. it's just they're so ugly, you know. I mean, yeah. I was yeah, just no. jumping around like
3: Antoine is not like spiders. So I, if you watch the episode, you can actually like hear me like, "Wow, look at that!" And I'm I'm the one holding um the flashlight, and then I go, oh, and then everybody starts screaming, and I'm just like laughing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty scary. Not, not a proud moment, yeah. my Antoine. <laughs> <laughs> and then um we saw a like. Every, almost every time we go there, there's always coyotes around us. I mean, I know they're not supposed to attack us or anything, but it's always kind of scary. is um, kind of freaked
3: out often. Yeah, I don't like when the coyotes come nearby. I mean, we're kind of like, I don't want to say, um, you know, it's in a mountainous area. We're covered, uh, we're surrounded by mountains. So, you know, in the nighttime when there's absolutely, I'm <clears throat> sorry, there's uh, nobody nearby. Like, all the sound is amplified. Right. So... You know, you hear, it, and it seems like it's a lot closer than it is. So I'm just like, "Oh no, we got to get out of here."
2: Yeah, it can be scary out here. You know, on the East Coast, I never thought about these things, but out here, you know, you've got mountain lions, bears. I, at the observatories, I always see tarantulas, and you know, rattlesnakes. And it's just, it's a lot more. I hope we
1: have
0: that
2: here. It's too. a lot more to consider here in Florida. Do I've got, you? I've got. That's way more than us.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, like I. <laughs> I went to Alaska once and I'm like, gosh, I don't, I hope we don't see a bear. And then we see a bear.
0: <laughs> yeah. The problem with the bears here in Florida is they're smaller. They're brown bears are they're black bears, but they're small and they, they kind of look really, really cute, but you do not want to be approaching those bears. And yeah, there was one, there's right. one that was, uh, in fact, on my own property, I was doing a video with us with Dustin on the C5 and there was, I could hear, it. I could hear him right in the back out there. So, Yeah, bear yeah or- like
3: people don't really consider like, you know, when you're, you know, out imaging, um, you know, you're going to have to go far out into, you know, for us, like into the desert, like we're going to be not in civilization. And obviously there's going to be animals out there. And most of the time what that does for me um, and when we're out there is I get a lot of paranoia the longer that we stay. So we're like, oh, you know, we're going to image for four hours and then four hours pass by and. We're like, oh, it's fine. And, you know, the animals I think I can deal with. But then, you know, that paranoia starts setting in. It's like deathly, deathly quiet out in the desert. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it does. It can get creepy really fast, too. All it takes is one sound. And when you're out there alone or just the the couple of you, right, it, it can get scary really fast. And, you know, bear attacks are really bad for your guiding, too. You know, you feel like, especially when you're running over equipment to get away from them. Yeah, yeah. it's not good. It never makes the image better.
1: (laughs) And then one time we were there and um, just by ourselves and we hear this long, like honking, like from far away, like a car honk. And we're like, what is that? And then a cop comes from behind us, like out of nowhere um, with his cop lights on and so we were imagining uh, i think the hoth nebula and because of the lights from the police car like that was like 30 shots that were ruined they were all, all like pink and blue <laughs> yeah and um and the the police guy was just looking for the for someone lost so i'm guessing he was looking for the guy that was honking from his car from far away mm-hmm. but it was pretty pretty scary too can we
0: talk a little bit about planetary imaging? Because I'm looking at your website and you have some planet images, but there are there are quite a few blanks. Now I know that you got to wait for uh, planets to be up in the night sky before you can image them. But what what differences do you have to? What do you have to do differently when imaging the planets versus imaging deep sky objects?
1: So we almost never do uh, any planetary imaging because. Yeah, because it's different. Uh, first of all, the processing is completely different. We don't use inside. We need to take a video of the planet and stack each frame um, with a specific software. And um, I mean, we, we have a, C, a CMOS camera now, so it might help. But with a DSLR camera, it's really hard to get a good picture of a, of a planet. Um, right.
3: I think, I think one time... <clears throat> we were discussing it and we were like, well, if we really wanted to do planetary imaging, we'd have to get different kinds of lenses. And we weren't sure if we wanted to invest in that since we were mainly focused on deep sky imaging.
1: But even with, you know, the telescope, it's really hard to to get a good, clear image of a planet with a DSLR camera. Um, and we don't really enjoy doing the, the processing part of it uh, as much as nebula or, or galaxies because it's, you know, it's really different. Uh, I really want to get, into planetary imaging at some point, uh, more in depth. Uh, we did Saturn for for a video, which was really fun, and we got a you know got an okay image of it, but we don't have any great planetary. What's image so different about the processing? I'm now. trying
0: to imagine. You still have to co-add many mul- multiple exposures, right? So,
1: well, first of all, you don't. Oh yeah, you don't take pictures like you do. Uh, you know, like long exposures for any deep sky object. You take a a video. And then the software, which is not PixInsight, it's something else that you can use, there's a few of them, uh, will look at the video and take all of the, the good frames out of the video and stack those, you know, from the video into an image. And then you can uh, process it afterwards.
0: Yeah, I've always called that the poor man's adaptive optics. It's where they take the few, as the atmosphere is scintillating, <laughs> it takes only the, the,
2: the yeah. sharpest mm-hmm. images
0: of the of the planet. Okay.
2: Yeah, it's called lucky imaging. But that's the idea is just take, you know, the fastest frame rate you possibly can. And then only keep the ones you might have 10,000 images, but you only keep the ones where the seeing was perfect for that split second. And, uh, you know, you might have 10,000 images originally and cut it down to say 300 or less. And then you stack those all on top of each other. But I can tell you, I mean, none of the programs are the same. It's just, it's almost like a different hobby. You know, generally it's done with, um, it can be done with the same telescopes that are used for, you know, a lot of like the images you have here are wide field images. It could be done with that with, you know, uh, amplified Barlows or, or anything like that. But um, no, it's, it's almost like a different hobby because everything about it is different you're not doing any long exposure stuff so
0: and but is that a signal to noise issue then because if you've got a a six minute exposure of barnard's loop versus a a, a 130th of a second exposure of a planet the noise signal to noise is going to be uh much lower in the planetary image right you're going to get a lot more noise
2: uh out of that than you are but you get a lot more images as well and then you've got other you just have other challenges the planets are a lot brighter for one thing yeah um but you also have the challenge of, you know, the, the atmosphere is going to – it's not averaged out over a long exposure. It's going to be – you know, you really have to find those images that are, you know, perfect seeing because your magnification has to be so high in order to get detail on a planet. And um, yeah, I mean it's – So are you saying that seeing is entirely. more of an issue for planetary imaging than for deep sky? Oh, okay. yeah. Seeing is absolutely oh, yeah. critical. <laughs>
0: Okay. That makes more sense. All right. So, well, okay. Um, well, can we, can we move over and talk a little bit about your outreach efforts? As Dustin said at the top of the, uh, at the top of the podcast that you guys are among the one, some of the best making, not only the hobby of astro. Photography available to as many people, but you're teaching people through these videos. Uh, talk a little bit about those in your production process and and how it's going. Where where can people see your videos?
3: So if anybody wanted to look us up, we post our videos on YouTube and, you know, we link them to our social medias, but most of it is YouTube tutorials or, you know, our special episodes, but most of them tend to be um, educational and informational. And I think once we, when we started Galactic Hunter, we just wanted to help people in this hobby as much as we could because we started out thinking um, we can complete this Messier catalog with our own images. And, you know, we did it with, like, amateur equipment. And, you know, when, when you're first starting out, you need help. And, and that's kind of fun for people to watch and learn at the same time, you know? Yes. And uh, we also have this um are youtube available in french and english which is like doubly hard in that sense because once we finish you know recording it in english we'll do it in french that way we can you know have exposure for both audiences yeah i'm
0: hearing that's more much more important in this day and age Uh, i make videos myself and and the extent to which i can make it available in other languages youtube definitely likes so that's cool that you do it organically in at least two different uh, languages that's really good
3: Yeah, and we um, have been trying to expand a little bit more. So we've created like, you know, some books as well. Um, And I think one of the books, because I also speak Spanish, I helped translate one of the books into Spanish. And um, we have a couple of copies sold of that, which is pretty great because, you know, not only are we trying to, you know, help English speaking and French speaking, but maybe we can also help Spanish speaking. And I like that's it's honestly been kind of scary because you never know if you can translate it correctly. But, you know, we take the time to do it and people tend to enjoy it. They give us a great feedback about it. That's
0: great. I mean, I always have I have to rely on translators to do like for subtitles and stuff. And I always think to myself, oh, Jesus, I hope they're like saying the right things (laughs) because I would I wouldn't know (laughs) what I was like. Oh, man, this is being translated into Portuguese. I wish I knew. Portuguese, <laughs> I know.
3: Yeah, like um, you're so lucky that you have me as one.
0: <laughs> yes, to be able to get it, make sure it's right and trustworthy. So,
2: so what are the things that you recommend to people getting in? Because um, one of the challenges that we see all the time is, you know, people go to our website or any website like ours and they say, okay, so there's twenty thousand different options. All of them can be paired together. Where do I start? Which telescope do I start with? Which camera? You know, we, we touched on the camera piece, but what do you think that, what's the easiest way for people to get started?
1: In my point of view, uh, if you're a complete beginner, you don't know anything about photography or anything else, you should probably start with a you know a cheap DSLR camera, but also buy some binoculars um, online and, you know, a cheap telescope. I mean, just a beginner one. Now, if you're really into the long-term thing, like, like we did, um, you know, you really want to make sure that you have some equipment for the long-term, then you can invest in something more expensive. I mean, our telescope is, I think, $400. That was, what, what $429? Around
3: 400 maybe, like, 500
1: It's, like, less than $500. It's a Orion Astrograph 8-inch. Um, so it's a pretty cheap telescope. Now, the mount is more expensive, but um, in the long-term, it's really important to have a good mount. So I think the very first... Um, piece of equipment that you need to think about is amount. mount. Definitely. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. To be able to carry something heavy for the long term, depending on what you plan to do in the long term. And then camera rise. Yeah. Is our a DSLR camera? Uh, we bought one off um, at the very beginning um, for cheap. like It was, it was a like, T3i, so it was really yeah. cheap. And then if you want to upgrade to a, a cooled camera, um, I would say, you know, a... A one-shot color is good, I guess, uh, for beginners. Or you could, you know, pick a, a monochrome camera. And what matters also is the accessories. Like, you know, you don't want to buy just a telescope and a mount. You have to buy all the accessories that you need. Um, like, you know, a, a guide camera, a... Uh, what else do we have? A, a guide scope, uh, a and T-ring my- adapter.
3: And then- Important thing also because I think you were saying like how how would people even know where to begin mm-hmm. to like and an important thing to know is that people are always going to look online and rely on reviews and um and videos like I think one of our first videos was actually an unboxing of stuff and that had really really um, high views because people don't know where to begin yeah well that's and it that's the I challenge think Instagram Instagram too was a big area where we we're researching for you know our own equipment.
1: Yeah, for Instagram actually, Dustin was a big uh influence right. to us uh back in the days. Um we were always on Instagram looking for pictures and you know most oftentimes astrophotographers they, you know, they add their equipment to their Instagram pictures <laughs> on the bottom of their images. So that really helps as well. You know, if you see a picture you really love, like a really beautiful nebula you want to do the same, look at the equipment list on the bottom of Uh, the image and try to match something if it looks, you know, affordable to you. I just wanted
0: to ask about the astrograph. You said you had an eight-inch astrograph. What is the difference between a telescope and an astrograph?
1: The astrograph is is f3.9, which means that's a very low number. It means that you will need to spend less time out there capturing an image and get a lot of light in your so sensor. So it's a fast optical system. It's a very fast, yeah. It's a very and fast And not
0: so great for uh, a visual observing, which is why it's called an astrograph. Is that right? It just gets...
1: Well, it's, yeah, it's not so great, but I mean, for us, we're actually really happy Oh, so you put that, eyepieces
0: in it. We've well, done some visual. In and, into that. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, now. yeah,
3: yeah. That's how we managed to, you know, even be able to view some of the planetary stuff because we're like, oh, you know, that it works very well
1: and even with galaxies and stuff i mean it's really visible i mean we don't have a dobsonian or anything else to compare it to but we're really happy with it something i've always
0: wondered and dustin maybe you can help me too is it does it help or does it hurt to buy a telescope a longer focal length telescope i don't know f6 or f5 or something like that and then buying a telecompressor uh to add to it does that mess things up uh image
2: image wise so there are some that are designed specifically for astrophotography and a lot of times when something's called an astrograph that's generally what they mean is that this telescope has been designed specifically for astrophotography that doesn't mean that it won't perform visually it just means that it's focused more on a wide or not a wide field, but a flat field so that it's across the sensor, You're not gonna have a lot of vignetting or anything like that. Usually a big image circle, ah. which means it's not gonna cut off pieces of the sensor. Um, and generally, not always, but they're generally like, um, like galactic hunters equipment very fast so that you're not doing these really really long exposures you know that may not be the case on certain equipment because they have different purposes you know purpose-built systems for planetary are generally really slow because you want the focal length but uh, astrographs in general are designed with flat fields in mind that have large image circles for big sensors and uh, because you know you're covering i mean some of these new systems you know, the system I've got in my office right now, this, the chip on it is two full frame chips together. Like, that's how big it is, you know? I mean, it's like imaging with a Frisbee. So this thing's, yeah, this thing's got to have an image circle that's huge to be able to illuminate that whole chip. And that's why their astrographs is, I mean, it's just a telescope that the manufacturer is saying, we designed this with imagers in mind and it will work on your sensors very, very well. Um, You're not going to have a lot of, you know, bad, uh, bad issues at the corners or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's generally what astrographs are. We, we even have a distinguishing, uh, link on our website for astrographs, but that does not mean they can't be used visually. The only time that's the case is when they're prime focused, where the secondary would be with something like a Celestron Rasa, where that scope can only be used with a camera because if the camera is on the front of the scope, that means where you would have to put your head to look through it, you'd be blocking the entire light path of the light going into the scope. You wouldn't be able to see anything, but that's only the case with a handful. I mean, you can count them on one hand, the scopes that are, you know, are generally sold. Can you can you make an astrograph from, uh, from a, a longer, slower telescope? Sure. Like you said, with telecompressors, right? We call them reducers. Um but yeah, reducers, they're often called reducer flatteners because they flatten the field and reduce it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you make the scope a lot faster and you make the field, the field flatter. So anytime you get you know, some of the best imaging scopes in the world, certainly the most awarded are uh, refractors because they have no secondary um, surfaces to bounce light off of. It's just a straight light path all the way through, so the contrast is incredible. Um, That's also what makes your Newtonian great uh, for the two of you is that Newtonians have really, really small secondary mirrors, whereas RCs and CDKs like mine, the obstruction of the light path coming to the primary mirror can be over 50% and um with a Newtonian it's not the case so you get a very fast system you get a lot of contrast in the image because there's not a lot of light being blocked and with refractors obviously there's no light at all being blocked but if you take a triplet like an apochromatic refractor it's not enough to just have a triplet you're also going to have to have a flattener which is another set of lenses that either just flatten the field or you know reduce the focal length and flatten the field which makes the system a lot faster all right. Well, I want to thank our guests. Uh, they're, they're
0: the Galactic Hunters, Dahlia and Antoine Grellin. They are located in the United States Southwest, where the desert skies are among the best we have to offer. And they are, you can get them on galactichunter.com. That's their website. But they also have a YouTube channel, a youtube.com slash, is it just Galactic Hunter, guys?
1: Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Slash, and you are slash, on
0: uh, Instagram as well?
1: yes you like right. so follow
0: them and and check out their videos because if you're a beginner listening to this podcast they ha- they are a great resource they will get you started in in good equipment and how to do things that i always thought were hard like i really like the focus episode they've got images that are uh, absolutely breathtaking something to, to aspire to for sure and uh thank you guys so much for taking time out to talk with us uh and we hope you'll come back and talk more about your exploits as you uh continue your adventures
3: oh definitely and i Probably, you know, we'll be here on time next time. Was <laughs> oh, <laughs> the
2: traffic? <laughs>
3: I came in like halfway through. When
2: we when we when we release this podcast, I'll also put a link on my uh, Instagram and Facebook because there's so much good information coming out of uh, GalacticHunter.com that I really think for people getting started in this, that's a great tool Agreed. and it needs to be used. People need to find this and use it because it will save them a lot of time and frustration getting the good information right out of the gate. So uh, very right. appreciative of what you guys are doing yep, for most the community definitely. and uh, yeah. Yeah, keep it up.
3: Yeah, because we, yeah, we just want to have people like go under the stars. And, you know, sometimes it's good to disconnect and, you know, go out and make some memories because that's that's what we're doing right now. And I think that's really special even for us to look back on because we we've experienced some crazy stuff and you can't do that until you unplug.
0: Get out there and do it too. Just go out and look up under the night sky, and you will—you'll be amazed at how you feel. So I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. So well, well done. Okay, well, and I don't know how podcasts when they get distributed to various places, I do get a chance to enter a description, and in there I will also put links. But uh, if you're listening to this so I'll via some kind of syndicator, you probably don't have access to that. So definitely GalacticHunter.com and YouTube.com/slash GalacticHunter and galactic.hunter on Instagram. So definitely check them out. And guys, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us. We look forward to talking to you again soon. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson, and my, I'd want to say thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.